Aid and Abet, the podcast. The conviction to live outside the lines. Oh, well, hey there. Hi there. Ho there. How are you? I'm so good. I read that you wrote a piece a couple of days ago and you started it with that and I actually like heard you in my brain. (laughs) (laughs) Hey there. Hi there. Ho there. I got people like diving into my DMs lately on Instagram going, hey there, hi there, ho there. And I'm like, what if I started? This is not the personal brand journey I thought I'd take, but fuck it. Maybe Here it's we go. Just, maybe it's the authentic one that you were meant to be on. Just a cartoon <laughs> character of a human. <laughs> so how's it going, Cassie? Tell me about your it's, – it's good. It's good. We have had a week of literally torrential downpour here in New Zealand and – Auckland, at least. I'm looking out the window right now, and I see this weird blue color up above, which I'm unaccustomed to. So I feel like today we're going <laughs> to have it? some... I'm not sure. Azure. Um, <laughs> I'm going to go check it out soon. That's great. Hopefully it's, it's accompanied it with raining. some sunshine. Yeah. 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 We were pretty lucky. We didn't, get, um, we didn't get a flood, but we got some leaks, which I have yet to tell my wife about. <laughs> Uh-oh. Maybe you can get them fixed before she notices. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Welcome to marriage. <laughs> How are you? So I'm great. We're, we're about to head into an ice storm here, so that's exciting. Um, ice and sleet. And, uh, yeah, just been embracing the staying inside of life in winter mm. and um, working out in the living room instead of going outside. <laughs> You're good so times. good. I've literally just been sitting on the floor eating food. <laughs> You know, whatever you got to do to get through. <laughs> well, tell me what was going on in your head today at 4 a.m. 4 a.m. Um, man, I've, I, I've been uh, really um, thinking a lot about the state of mental health in the music industry, which is, you know, not the lightest of topics. And I have already had at least two, um, quote unquote, discussions with my partner, Jake, about this, where he has ended it <laughs> telling me that I cannot yell at him about the fact <laughs> that the music industry is struggling, <laughs> which is fair because, you know, I mean, it's not his fault. <laughs> um, we cannot has... blame this on Jake. <laughs> it's definitely not his fault. But no, I've been, I've been thinking about that a lot. There's just, there's some horrific statistics out there to say that musicians are, are three times more likely to suffer from depression and anxiety. And I've been delving really deep into that uh, for the purpose of Fi- not not just to make myself miserable at 4am, but to try and find um, a path out of it as well. You know, there's some really great mm. organisations already mm. doing some really great work around helping musicians. Uh, and the thing that is starting to really intrigue me is is what we can do more prophylactically than therapeutically. Yeah. Something did to you just say it, prophylactic? So. I did. I'm trying to bring that back from meaning exclusively condoms. Because <laughs> scientifically Because even speaking, my little lesbian brain was like, that's what you... <laughs> That's, that's a, something for the old eggplant. <laughs> so, scientifically speaking, as I push my glasses back up on my nose, um, it actually just means, you know, care that is given in advance to prevent illness, whereas therapeutic is given post to cure. So, you know, <laughs> prophylactic um, assistance to musicians <laughs> to stop them from fucking crumbling under the weight of the industry mm. expectations and demands and their own expectations and demands. That, mm. my lovely friend, is what I was thinking about at 4 a.m. <laughs> Holy sheep shit. That is a, yeah. boy, that is a, that is a big one, 
to unpack. I think across um, lots of creative fields, the, the statistics yeah, and advertising and marketing are just as horrific. And here in New Zealand, we have one of the highest suicide rates in the world, specifically in and around uh, creatives and, and creatives of, of color and queer creatives. So, yeah. Wow, that just, horrible. that just really brought Sorry us Sorry for the bummer. <laughs> hey, but today's you did say episode... prophylactic twice. <laughs> I did. So you're welcome for that. Um, today's episode is so <laughs> exciting, though. It's, uh, this is one of our review episodes where we are going to discuss something that is out in the world that we just, I suppose, not always love, but in this case, absolutely love. Um, this is a, uh, a book that you brought into my life and I am very grateful for. Um, and I think being the, uh, the, the person that has shared this magic with maybe 30 different people, um, Mm -hmm. I think you should introduce it. Oh my gosh. Um, what folks listening couldn't hear was the happy dance and little sprint I just did kind of around my garage here where we're recording. Oh, if we're going to record, if we're going to review anything, in the first instance, I am so happy you agreed to this one because, I mean, like you just did, push glasses back on nerdy nose. Um, I love books, and I know you love books, and we're, we're bookish uh, <laughs> to the extreme. But I don't know. You know, there's, it's like a song or an album or something that just sticks with you, and you listen to it on repeat and repeat. I've read this book, not a word of a lie, at least 10 times. And I've, to your point, I've given it out probably 30 times to the point where when I walk into the woman's bookstore in Ponsonby, the ladies kind of hide behind the table now if they don't have a copy because they know I'm going to want to buy all the copies to give to people. Um, that is to say, ha, 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 the book itself is called The Dictionary of Lost Words. It's by an Australian author named Pip Williams. The most amazing thing uh, to me, is that this beautiful, beautiful book is her first novel. Um, oh, wow. Not to I say that, that I don't... Yeah, this is her first novel. It's won, I mean, even from the cover alone, I can see that it's won over seven awards globally. Um, but I think the thing I love about it so much is that it really taps into my geek's heart around historic storytelling. The crux of the story itself is that it is a story told of a young girl called Esme who works in a scriptorium, which is the place where words are decided upon to go into the Oxford English Dictionary. Um, Esme's dad is one of the main proprietors of deciding whether or not words go into the dictionary of all English language or not. Um, it's set in and around uh, the World War, there's love, there's loss, and the baked into it is this beautiful lyrical language. Like I remember the first time I read this book. I think I gave your mom my original copy. Actually, it's probably got underlined words on every single page. Every single page. Just my little poet's brain was alight reading it the first time, and I've just finished rereading it again last night in preparation for today. And and again. The the lyrical nature of how she brought to life different levels of women in society, how men have always, always guarded things, our language, our ability to choose, voting, all of these things. They haven't given this to us. They've kept it from us. And this book is a look into that. It's a look into the words we use, 
Um, when we talk about English being a language that is very much a classist language, we meet lots of characters in this book who are, are the down and out kind of women uh, all the way to the top of society and all of them struggle because of the language society uses. And I know I'm talking a lot, but I, I would love to read <laughs> a little line from this book, if you may. Um, this, this might be one of my favorites. Um, a central theme to this book, too, for listeners who haven't read it, uh, is the word bond made. But I'll leave that to you to read the book. So it says bond made. It came back to me then, and I realized the words most often used to define us were words that described our function in relation to others. Even the most benign words, maiden, wife, mother, told the world whether we were virgins or not. What was the male equivalent of maiden? I could not think of it. What was the male equivalent of missus, of whore, of common scold? I looked out the window towards the scriptorium, the place where the definitions of all these words were being bedded down, and I wondered which words would define me. Just incredible. Do you know what I love about that is that I chose a passage where Esme gives the scrap of paper that says Bond made to her, um, you know, female caregiver. So she is a she. Lizzie is a Bond made, and she and unknowingly Esme, as a young girl, gives it to her as she's just started this process of collecting these scraps of paper. She gives it to her to look after, and the and the power of that without realizing what the word means really hit me. And it's it's so um, cool that you chose a section around the same. I mean, it's just this book to me changed the way that I think about language in such a mm. profound way. I read a lot, and it is very unusual that a book will upend my way of thinking about an entire subject. Um, but if, if you'd asked me before I read this, you know, how dictionaries were, were, were written, I would have just said, like, well, I guess they just figure out what is the, the colloquial language of the time and they, and they curate, you know, curate it, put it together, yeah. make a book, sell a book. Like, it hadn't occurred to me that the people who curate the words are going to decide what words are valid and what aren't. And this is not giving much away in the book to say that the way that she starts collecting words is that every word is written on a scrap of paper and the men, they are all men, sitting around this table basically are debating whether or not these words are, are acceptable or legit enough to be put in the dictionary. And sometimes the words that are deemed unacceptable or unworthy fall on the floor and she starts collecting them. And that the premise of, of men, not just men, but the fact that they were men deciding whether words were valid or not and the fact that every dictionary throughout time has been put through a male lens, meaning not just like it's a male lens so it must be bad, I'm not saying that, meaning that men were deciding whether that words that specifically related to women should be included and generally speaking they decided that they shouldn't be. That absolutely blew my mind. I think that's the thing with this book that got me. There were so many levels to it. It was, even if I hadn't learned anything, <laughs> even if it wasn't so beautifully um, just told, if, if the narrative hadn't sucked me in so so wholly, I think the fact that I 
I'm the same as you. I was like, and I'm a wordsmith. Like this is what I've been doing in my job for years is figuring out how language can bring people together in communities, how a language can draw people in to create, you know, urgency for sales, all of these different psychological things. And I've known that language, especially the English language is classist, but oh my God, I never thought either that men sat around a table to figure out which words were the quote unquote proper words. And the way that they figured that out was by looking back into time to other men who'd had to have written them down. And the entire point of the book that really, really just kicks me in the gut every time is the fact that there are many characters across all swaths of society who say multiple times, I didn't think the words that I used were worthy of being recorded. I was born to be forgotten. You know, that kind of a thing. And that really got me in this day and age. You know, as we went through the Black Lives Matter movement, as we start to look at, like you were talking about even at 4 a.m., mental health and the way that we use our language to speak to artists and creatives, if we're not allowing people to utilize their language and their colloquialisms and their slang and inviting everybody in, oh my God, we're excluding simply by saying that's not correct because someone else decided. And you know what I think about that. Everything's <laughs> fucking made up. Well, and I was one of the other sections that I also marked down was a section where um, Esme's talking to Mabel in the market. Oh. Um, oh. And Mabel is lives on the street. You know, she's she, over the course of the book, ends up looking much, much worse every time that she comes into the story. And again, without giving too much away, because I would really hope that people will go and read this beautiful book. But Mabel represents not only the fact that she's a woman, precludes her words from being included, but because she is a street woman and because she is perceived mm -hmm. to be the lowest of society, even more so are the words that she uses deemed unacceptable. A, because they relate to women, often the words are, you know, some of them are, are, are dirty words. <laughs> that, you know, she's I using... love the dirty words. <laughs> I knew all of them. <laughs> it was, yeah, but, and, and so not only because they're, they're dirty words, uh, in inverted commas, but because she's a, a woman and she's using those words to describe her body and, and the, the way that she relates to it, but also then because she is low class. She's, she just lives on the street. So nothing that she thinks or says is considered worthy of this mighty book of words. And that hit me too, that it's not just a gender issue. It's not, it's, it's a class issue. Mm -hmm. And, and once again, this, this fact that I had just taken for granted for so long that dictionaries were an accurate representation of language at the time of printing. And they are just not. <laughs> mm -hmm. See, this is why I don't read business books. This is why I don't read dictionaries. If you want to say, if you want to say a word, make it up. Go for it. We'll use it. <laughs> we'll write it down on our little slip and record it. Isn't that something? I don't know if I heard this on NPR or if I heard that somewhere else. But they talk about how to de to deem if a word is a real word or not. You know, I actually have a great. Uh, joy in making up words that sound sort of like mm -hmm. they should make sense, but they actually aren't a word. Aside from that, what is deemed to be a real word is is some formula like if you can say it in a sentence and a stranger mm -hmm. will understand you, it's considered mm -hmm. a, quote, real word. Um, I'd be very interested to know now how dictionaries are curated. Like who, yeah. are, who are sitting around those figurative tables? Is, is there a cross-section of 
of races and and classes and and a cross section of society to actually represent society. I mean, Urban Dictionary is a laugh a lot of the time, oh, but yeah, maybe there's some value to it that it's it's oh, taking words absolutely. that are you know used and and it's rec- at least recording them for posterity. Have you come across the Dictionary of Sorrows? Uh. Uh-uh. Of course, you know my little sad raccoon heart loves it. <laughs> I'll be bawling. Uh, it sounds, it sounds it's very sick. <laughs> it's super uplifting. <laughs> but um, it, that's one of my favorite places to go um, when I'm looking for ideas to spark imagination. When I start things for rethinking keynotes and those kinds of things, it's um, a place where the author and authors take words from across different subsections of language. So there there could be like an Arabic and a French uh, colloquialism that they bring together to mean a word. Um, it's where I first heard the word sonder. And I started to go, oh my God. I think it started with one dude, lol, strangely enough. And he started to create all of these different words. And the more, like he'll come up with a new word every month or so. And it's just so beautiful because every single rule that the dictionaries have had, you can see this person went, hmm, I understand some of it from the etymology perspective of, of where a word comes from, but I want to explain something better. I want to I do this in a, in a more modern way. And it's beautiful. That's, and I think the, the same with Urban Dictionary. The more that we can open our minds and our hearts to different words, the more different people are going to feel seen, they're going to feel heard, they're going to feel valued, and we're going to work to bring people together instead of pull them apart. You know, language, language pulls people apart. Language can mm-hmm. be weaponized. And that's what I loved about this book. It was like she talked a lot about Esme's journey was a vehicle for explaining that our words are our memory and our legacy. You know, it's, it's the way that sometimes, and last night Carly and I were actually upstairs just being silly buggers before bed and just, you know, having a laugh. And um, I said, you know, if I died tomorrow, please put my ashes in a r- little raccoon vase. And she was like, what? And we were just teasing. And then all of a sudden, the light flicked on and she said a word that only Grandma Roma used to say. And I was like, what the heck? So the, the legacy and the memory um, that lives through people's words is, is something so powerful mm. and important. Um, something else about the Dictionary of Lost Words I was reading a review, and this is something I didn't, strangely enough, pick up the first time, is because the book is set um, against the backdrop of kind of the suffragette movement in the UK and World War I, when one of the, the male characters comes back from war, one of the biggest worries that Esme has is whether or not this character is going to have words ample enough to describe the horrific nature of what he came up against. Hmm. Now, I won't say anything about what happens with the words that they came up with um, about the atrocities of war. But I thought that was a really loving and gentle nod to the fact that she didn't have anything against the men who were um, curating the book. She just saw the inequities there, but she still had this deep love for, well, how do we allow our men to talk about what they've gone through if men historically haven't talked about the hardships of, of things like war and the mental trauma? So I thought that was really neat too. Yeah, and it's not. I think this. I feel the same about it as as that it, that sentiment expresses that it's not a resentment towards the men who curated these books. It's the fact that it it is 
not representative of all people because women are so glaringly women and and they, they, they were all white men too like it's it's you know not mm-hmm. just that mm-hmm. i also think that language is how we express our core experience of the world it's mm-hmm. how we express mm-hmm. who we are at the deepest level and i th- i think that one of the one of the things I was thinking about when you talked about Carly and you messing around and in the language using lang- different you, the language you use is what we've talked about about being expats and about translating ourselves mm-hmm. is that often the time that I feel the most alienated from the people around me is when I say something and I get that blank look of misunderstanding yeah. or no understanding um, and that comes from the language I'm using that I naturally use that falls out of me when I'm you know totally at ease is often this weird hybrid of Kiwi and American. So being in hey. one place or the other, you know, it's it's it can be really hard when the language that you use isn't understood. And I think when mm-hmm. you are then also told that the language you use is not only not understood but is not valid. It, mm-hmm. I, I know the really like the frustration this sounds like such a petty thing to be frustrated by but it is it is very frustrating and sometimes quite upsetting to be reminded constantly mm-hmm. that you don't fit and it can be that really simple yes you know i can be at a at a bar or a restaurant and i just i mean mm-hmm. i've been here for 10 years so it doesn't happen as often anymore but still to this day i can accidentally order something using the wrong word or i say i explain something to a friend using a phrase that they just don't understand and that that other ring is is awful and that's at a very mm. sort of low level so the idea of women in this in this book women being explicitly told that their language is invalid is just heartbreaking it is it is and i think it maybe again too i never thought about it until you said it right now maybe my deep and abiding love for this book is not only the depth of it and not only the the lyrical nature and the way that she paints pictures around Esme's view of the world and how it changes consistently. Um, but it's that same thing that you just said. It's, you know, you've been in the States 10 years, I've been in New Zealand 20 years. And that's, we, you know, that's how we became such close friends so quickly is we don't have to translate ourselves. But this book puts into stark contrast the fact that women had to translate themselves all the time. And that was across the different cross-sections of society as well. Like when Esme met Mabel for the first time and didn't know what to think about her because she didn't understand. And she always mm-hmm. had her little pencil and everything ready to write these words. It's it's the same thing. Like I, for me, the, I am, the thing I'm most excited about in the next few weeks is, is landing in Nashville you coming to get me and we're going to go watch the Super Bowl because I don't have to explain the rules. Well, I'll probably have to explain the rules to you, you but I love you, so me. that's fine. <laughs> All you have to do is say, yay, Chiefs, go Chiefs, and we're fine. Sounds good. But I know, like, yeah, we're going to be in a room full of people where there will be no translation selfishly for me. <laughs> you know, and I, uh, Brenda's already good. She's going to host us a party, FYI. This is oh. just for me and Vanessa. Don't worry, everybody. We'll get back to the book. Um, <laughs> But, you know, those kinds of moments are the ones where you can just take a deep breath and especially as a woman feel safe and, mm-hmm. and be in a place where you just speak your mind. And this is all to say I'm holding the book up right now. I'm lovingly caressing it. Um, please, please, if you are a reader, 
Um, even if you just read one book a year, read the Dictionary of Lost Words, and, and heck, if you need one, DM me. I'll send you to somebody who has one, or I'll send you one, because Lord knows I've probably put Pip Williams' kids through school already. <laughs> I mean, I, I would say, too, if you sort of are listening to this... Um you know, deep dive into the implications of language being curated by men. I would say also it's just a great story. You you mm-hmm. could not give a shit about the stuff that we care about and still <laughs> love this book because it is, it's an amazing story. The characters are, are fantastically well-rounded. You could read this book purely for the, the narrative of this, you know, of the character stories and love it. So yeah. this the, the impact for both of us was twofold, I think, and what we're talking about today is, is, you know, a big part of why it really profoundly impacted me, but I also enjoyed it because it was just a great read. It's, you know, yeah. it's, it's a good book. It's a, I, can, I can also understand why it's won all the prizes. <laughs> Review, five stars, five stars, five stars. Yeah. That's all I have to say, five stars. <laughs> Pip Williams, it. chef's kiss, Mwah. It's like a perfect spaghetti of a book, huh? (laughs) Okay, I think that's it. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, share, subscribe to the podcast, and share with your friends. Aid and Abet is produced by Vanessa McGowan and Cassie Roma with music by Tattletale Saints. Aid in a bit, kindness, love, empowerment, wahine, friendship, music, storytelling, aid and a bet, change. change.